0: However, what was going on was a change underneath the surface. There was always an element of their support that said, basically, what's the point of liberating ourselves from London by leaving the United Kingdom, only to put ourselves into chains with Brussels by being part of the European Union?
1: The United Kingdom is fraying. After decades of neoliberal economic policy, devolution, the end of empire, in recent events such as Brexit and the COVID-19 pandemic. The people of Scotland have questioned their place in the United Kingdom. Support for a second independence referendum is at a record high, and those who favor independence now compose nearly 60% of the Scottish electorate, according to recent polling. As Scotland stands at a crossroads, its relationship with Britain is being re-examined as a specter of Scottish independence poses unique challenges for Europe and the world.
2: Professor Sir John Curtis is a professor of politics at Strathclyde University in Glasgow, Scotland, and senior research fellow at the National Centre for Social Research. He has written extensively about voting behaviour in elections and referendums in the UK, as well as on British political and social attitudes more generally. He is a fellow of the British Academy, the Royal Society of Edinburgh, and the Academy of the Social Sciences. He's also an honorary fellow of the Royal Statistical Society. All right, John, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Not at all. Great. So we're going to get started here by asking you um, a first question uh, to provide our listeners with a little bit of context. Um, We'll go from the way back, start from the beginning. Um, could you please explain to us what the United Kingdom actually is and why it was established in 1707?
0: Yes, I think the crucial thing one needs to understand about the United Kingdom is that it is not a classic European nation state. The classic European nation state, eh, I guess, is typified perhaps by France, whereby there is one nation that is encapsulated within one state and is kind of part of a wider European notion that nations and states um should be coterminous with each other of course there are plenty of exceptions to that but that as it were has long been a model uh, the united kingdom in contrast is a multinational st- uh, state um in the case of uh, wales um Uh, which is one of the nations of the United United Kingdom. This is the product essentially of invasion and eventually the incorporation of Wales uh, in with England in the 16th century. Uh, The Ireland, all of which, of course, at one stage was part of the United Kingdom until 1922 when the Republic was founded. uh, That again is the product, was essentially the product of invasion. but Scotland I'm sure were, Scotland and England certainly had more than one military engagement and at various points in time, uh, armies from the Kingdom of Scotland moved south and invaded bits of England and occasionally the uh, complement was returned with armies marching north uh, with such events as the uh, Battle of Bannockburn. However, England was never, sorry, Scotland was never uh, conquered permanently by England in the way that Wales was and much of Ireland was, um, but rather um, it, in the end, voluntarily, quote-unquote, um, uh, to join uh, in, with England and Wales and Ireland, which at that stage was not part of the United Kingdom, but became part of the United Kingdom at the beginning of the 18th century. It, it voluntarily joined in 1707. Now, of course, what is true is that 100 years before that, with the death of Queen Elizabeth um, in what, 1603, it so happened because of course she didn't have any uh, sons or daughters, she never married, and this was true of a number of other uh, children of of Henry VIII, um, that in fact the crown passed to uh, James VI of Scotland, who already held the crown of Scotland, who then became the James the first of England. So for um, throughout the course of the 17th century, Scotland and England shared the same uh, king stroke queen, um, but actually they were still technically set. I mean, whether we should use the word states at this point in time is an interesting debate, uh, but certainly they were separate legal jurisdictions and Scotland had its own parliament and in theory, uh, decided things for itself. the event that is widely regarded as having precipitated the decision of Scotland to sue for union with England was um, the failure of the so-called Darian colony back, uh, again, the back end of the, uh, the 1600s. Um, this, of course, is the era uh, where various parts of the Americas are being discovered, quote-unquote, uh, by white Europeans, And um, uh, there was an attempt to found a colony in what is now known as Panama um, by uh, some financiers and people from Scotland there. A boat sailed out. um, uh, But unfortunately, um, the colony did not survive the rigors uh, of the Panaman uh, climate. Um, and it failed, and in the way that that essentially resulted in a serious uh, financial stroke, banking bra- uh, uh, crisis uh, for Scotland, because uh, numerous people who put money into this project, of course, they were there doing it because they're hoping to discover gold, etc. Um, and this began, eventually led to, and and England, as it were, and the English crown was not terribly keen on helping to bail the Scots out and so uh, eventually uh, uh, negotiations were opened for a treaty of union um, and uh, the Scots parliament eventually agreed to uh, that basically uh, uh, the two jurisdictions should be joined. Scotland joined the United Kingdom at a rather propitious time for a country that had been uh, finding it difficult to survive uh, financially on its own. Because, of course, uh, not many, many years later, we begin to get uh, the beginnings of what we now know as the British Empire.
1: This is quite an unusual setup. You have this sort of uh, quasi-federative, where you kind of have the... You know, Scotland kind of have its own own uh, system, its own setup, but then you also have these other complexities that are in place. So, this is a given this like unusual, unique, different setup, um, aside from the short term financial rescue and then the imperialism you cited, what benefits did the acts of union have for Scotland? And, and would you even
0: say, I mean, I mean, I mean, two things. I mean, two, two, two things coincide. I mean, one is that. Um, Scotland, together with uh, parts of north of England, are uh, the engine of the Industrial Revolution, which, of course, occurred um, in the United Kingdom before anywhere else. Um, So coal, iron, steel, and to some degree, though not so much as in Lancashire, cotton, um, absolutely uh, uh, crucial here. And of course... Uh, the ability of the United Kingdom to exploit uh, these assets was tied up with a second development, which is the advent of empire, um, and that um, uh, you know Scotland um, profits from the ability of. The United Kingdom to trade with India, with North America, um, with Australasia, uh, various numerous parts of of, of, of Africa, etc. Uh, so basically, what does Scotland get out of it? Well, it becomes one of the most affluent and asset-rich parts of the world uh, as part of a polity that at that, the, the, this stage, for at least a period of time, was as it were the um, premier economic, trading, and military power um, uh, 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 in the world. So, it got, arguably, it got quite a lot out of it. And as I said, it you know it participated disproportionately heavily and benefited particularly strongly from this uh, uh, coincidence of things. And. And although I said to you that, you're right, you have to say that, you know, there were aspects of its legal system, etc., still being separate. Basically, Scotland was pretty much integrated. Yes, it still had its own system, of local government, local administration, and that gives some opportunity for variation. But basically, you know, Scotland is being governed by and through the United Kingdom Parliament and the United Kingdom government. And there, you know, was nothing at all really very much in the way. Or any kind of devolution at all. Uh, we basically hit the, se- the second half of the 19th century, 1885. We begin, we get the foundation of what we came to know as the Scottish Office. Um, and the Scottish Office pre- began to provide the f- beginnings of what we came to know as executive devolution. So basically, you know, in some respects, public policy and administration in Scotland could be different. But only because the United Kingdom and the United Kingdom Parliament said that it could be different. So uh, in the end, who ran Scotland was a function of decisions that were made across the United Kingdom as a whole. Uh, but then it allowed for the possibility of some variation. But you, you, are, you are talking about, uh, despite you know the provisions of the Treaty of Union, you know. I, a fully signed up, heavily participated part in the Kingdom State. And then, of course, this is the era, you know, which is Linda Colley's written up a great deal about. This is the era where the notion of Britishness becomes a popular uh, notion. And the idea of British identity becomes, as it were, the central emotional glue um, that is developed and used. In order to, you know, the symbols of of of, of, of unionism, the union jack, etc., um, you know, these are developed during this era, and which you know get a high level of he- adherence. We think, from the kind of evidence we've had for this period, uh, from people north of the border.
1: So this sort of the sense of Britishness, all the um, benefits to a large degree, of why Scotland would participate in this type of system a lot of it came from this, industri- this industrialization and imperialism and, and the benefits that came from, from both, at least for the Scottish people. Um, mm-hmm. Do you still see those benefits as relevant in a post-imperial, post-industrial landscape today?
0: No. I mean, and that's arguably part of the, the long-run story of what's happened in Scotland. Um, from um, you know, the 1920s onwards, those economic advantages of coal and iron and steel become less and less advantageous because there are other parts of the world that could pre- that could produce some of uh, manufactured goods more cheaply uh, the United Kingdom etc uh, etc et and therefore you know by the 1930s uh, Scotland is one of those parts of um, the United Kingdom that's suffering particularly heavily. From um, economic recession and the crash of the 1930s, etc., etc., so you're therefore talking a part, uh, a, a part of the United Kingdom where, I think, were being part of the United Kingdom had clearly been part of its economic to its economic advantage to uh, uh, beginnings of an era when it was no longer so clearly to its economic advantage. Now that arguably, then, to some degree, is ameliorated the fact by, of course, that. What what you then saw in the immediate post-war period in the United Kingdom, you know, I'm not unique in this respect. Substantial expansion of the role of the state. This is partly uh, 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 articulated in the provision of substantial levels of welfare, uh, and that helps to cement, continue to cement Scotland's uh, position in the union and gives it a relative advantage. Uh, But also the fact that steel and iron and coal. Um, together with the railways, were uh, amongst the industries that were nationalised in the United Kingdom in the late 1940s, and so it was certainly you know, very strongly argued that, you know, um, support for keeping Scotland inside the United Kingdom was certainly being cemented, underlined, and maintained by the fact that. Um, uh, this state had taken over, and to some degree, therefore, as a result, was subsidising some of these uh, Scottish um, uh, industrial assets. Um, but of course, you know, gradually, you know, the um, sunset, the sun was setting over the British Empire during the 1950s, the 1960s, and then, of course, when we got into the 1980s, um, the remaining coal, iron, steel manufacturing in Scotland uh, gradually began to disappear, um, uh, uh, not least because of the policies being pursued by the then Conservative administration under uh, the late Margaret Thatcher. Um, so a lot of the things that were it was thought helped to keep Scotland signed up to the union in the immediate post-war period, uh, a lot of that was being eroding. And of course, by this stage, of course, you know, the United, the United Kingdom is, is no more than a middle-ranging power. And, you know, certainly not no longer uh, somewhere uh, with an empire um and where you're beginning to know the development over the last 30 or 40 years of a globalized world which kind of raised two questions for a a country like scotland one is well okay it might have made might have made a strategic sense for Scotland to, as it were, sign up uh, to be up with part of England uh, during uh, the 18th and 19th century when England was uh, uh, very clearly that, uh, that for a long time the premier power in the world. Um, but those days are over um, and that therefore, as it were, being part of the European Union And, for example, therefore being integrated with the primary economic power in Europe, this Germany, strategically arguably begins to make much more sense. Um, So, uh, you know, that's one of the things. And the other thing, which is arguably one of the ironies of the process of globalization, is that insofar as, for example, uh, until uh, 12 months ago, uh, the United Kingdom was part of uh, the European Union, and you might anticipate that an independent Scotland will be part of the European Union. The Ironically, one of the ironies of globalisation, arguably it makes independence easier for small countries, because if you're living in a globalised world uh, where you are part of a large uh, domestic uh, single market uh, with no tariffs, Uh, where you've got freedom of movement, of labour, so you have access to a large labour pool, etc. So in a sense, because uh, the economic meaning of independence means so much less in a globalised world, um, it's perhaps more opportunity to focus on some of the more symbolic and cultural uh, consequences of independence and and to enjoy some of those uh, while at the same time being part of a, uh, a globalised, integrated economic world. So I think certainly you know, some of the strategic um, positioning of Scotland now in a post-imperial globalised world is very different from argue, what it was when uh, we had a British Empire and Britain was the premier economic power. There's one other part of the, as it were, the long-run story we've not mentioned, and that is the discovery of oil in the North Sea in the late 1960s. So I've painted you a picture of relative economic decline between 1914 and 1960, ameliorated to some degree by uh, the nationalisation of some of the uh, industries that were particularly prominent and important to Scotland's economy. Um, The discovery of oil off the North Sea, um, and with most of the oil that was in the United Kingdom's territorial waters, being in waters off the coast of Scotland rather than off the the coast of England, uh, led to the cry of its Scotland's oil and began to um, make it possible to argue that perhaps actually an independent Scotland which had Access to all of the revenues from North Sea oil as opposed to showing them with the rest of the United Kingdom might actually be a credible proposition as an independent state. It perhaps might be quite a wealthy proposition independent state, in much the same way as, for example, Norway on the other side of the North Sea uh, certainly has become. Um, so having had this as this history of an advantage out of the empire, disadvantage um, of uh, Britain's declining economic position as it were, then there was the prospect of advantage. And the first um, serious discussions about independence and certainly the first initial electoral success for the Scottish National Party, which is the party that's in favour of independence, um, occurs in the late 60s, early 1970s, and indeed in the uh, uh, two general elections that we had in the uh, United Kingdom in 1974. Um, uh, the Scottish National Party got its first serious representation in Westminster, and indeed actually was the second largest party in terms of votes in Scotland um, in, in 1974. So this is a pretty, pretty uh, substantial change and its beginning of, the, of a history whereby the politics of Scotland begins to be very, very different.
1: This divergence of destiny between Scotland and Britain is further exacerbated by the entry of the United Kingdom into the European Common Market, the precursor to the current European Union, in the mid-1970s. Scotland's main nationalist party, the SNP, began to play on this divergence. This is when Scotland begins to assert itself as an alternative to Westminster.
0: That said, uh, when the United Kingdom held a referendum on... whether or not it should stay in the then uh, Common Market, which it had joined only too earlier. So this is in 1975, having joined in 1973. At that point, actually, the Scottish National Party was in favour of getting out of the Common Market. Uh, Not least of the reasons for this was that the Common Market had uh, dramatic implications for the way in which we uh, managed uh, agriculture because we had become part of the common agricultural policy, which was widely thought to be disadvantageous to farmers in the UK, and also um, had a, was developing a common fisheries policy, and that was certainly regarded as um, un, uh, disadvantageous to the United you Kingdom and to Scotland in particular, where fishing, uh, relatively speaking at least, although not in absolute terms, you know, was relatively important. So we're already talking about a country, 45% of people who voted yes back in September 2014. Um, no signs of that having declined since. And when you had um, now Scotland being required to leave the European Union, even though it voted for the opposite. And it has to be understood that one of the central narratives of the nationalist movement in Scotland has always been looking at the problem with being Part of the United kingdom is that Scotland is, which is only ten percent, nine percent of the UK population, uh, is always at risk of having its democratic wishes, quote unquote, overturned by the less progressive allegedly views of people in England. Certainly, um, Brexit, the United Kingdom's decision to leave the European Union, seemed to be a clear and classic demonstration uh, of that argument actually for quite a while it didn't seem to make much difference we were still looking according to the opinion poll at about 45% support for independence however what was going on was a change underneath the surface um, one of the ironies of the 2014 independence referendum was that we indeed actually spent many hours arguing about whether or not if scotland were to become independent whether it would be able simply to carry on being part of the European Union, albeit now as an independent state, without there being any break in its membership, without having to apply, etc., etc. Those on the unionist side of the argument who are trying to persuade people to vote no said look, the only way to guarantee Scotland's membership of the European Union is to vote no. So, um, now actually... The irony is that although that was a central argument in the referendum, one of the things that we discovered afterwards from survey research is that basically it didn't make any difference, that people's attitudes towards the European Union at that point in time, you know, whether they were Eurosceptic and kind of wanted to get out or weren't terribly keen on it, wanted to minimise its powers or actually were quite comfortable with Europe, um, that actually people's views on that subject were unrelated to whether they voted yes or no. Because although, the, as I said, the SNP... Were, had long since been in favour of independence in Europe and were signed up to EU membership, there was always an element of the, their support that said, basically, what's the point of liberating ourselves from London by leaving the United Kingdom only to put ourselves into chains with Brussels by being part of the European Union and being, con- being constrained in what we can do by such membership? However, after the 2016 Brexit referendum, although the level of support for independence wasn't changing, the character of the support for it was. And what you began to discover was that you know, some people who had voted no in 2014 but remain inside the EU in 2016 switched to yes. They were sufficiently upset about the decision about the European Union to um changed their minds. But equally, there were other people who had voted yes to independence and then to leave the Union, who had moved in the opposite direction. So there was quite a lot of resorting going on of who was and who wasn't in favour, such that now, within about 12 months, very clear relationship between whether or not you wanted to be inside the Open Union, much more likely to be in favour of yes than if you were somebody who wanted to be outside the European Union, much more likely to be in favour of no. So although the aggregate character of support was unchanged, the the aggregate level of support wasn't changed, the aggregate aggregate character was changing. Now, um, however, given that there are basically about twice as many people who voted no and remain, as there are people who voted yes and leave, such a process of sorting was always at risk of eventually uh, ending up with an increase in the tally of support for yes. And basically during the course of last calendar year, 2019, when the United Kingdom was deeply, deeply uh, involved in a debate about whether or not Uh, We should be accepting the terms of uh, withdrawal that the then Prime Minister Theresa May had agreed with the European Union, Parliament rejecting that, uh, various attempts to try and uh, pursue a different path, including possibly holding another referendum that might reverse the decision. So by this stage, really, really heightened debate, and we then you began to discover the polls, began to move, and during the course of 2019, on average, there were 49% support for yes, 50%. Uh, by the time the United Kingdom left the European Union at, at the end of January of this year. So against that uh, backdrop, uh, as it were, uh, you know, Brexit clearly has been crucial, but it's changed the character of support for independence. And in the long run, at least, it has resulted in an increase in support um, because basically there are now more people who are sufficiently upset about being outside um, uh, the European Union um, uh, and they think that an independent Scotland would be likely to rejoin, um, uh, and that now outnumbers the gains that were made for on the no side, and that's now a f- crucial fundamental. There, there is no doubt. I mean, you know, one of the ironies of the whole political d- debate about this subject is that the people who are keenest within uh, the United Kingdom on getting out of the European Union and ending uh, membership of the single market of the European Union are amongst those who are keenest on keeping Scotland within the Union and ensuring that the the single market of the United Kingdom is kept whole and entire. So in other words, they have very, very much, it's a British nationalism, it's a British nationalism that is antithetical to, to the European Union, but believes deeply in keeping the Union. However, the trouble is such British nationalism is relatively thin on the ground north of the border. And although it may not have been the intention of somebody like Boris Johnson, now the Prime Minister, in campaigning for leave, to in any sense to want to break up the union, indeed undoubtedly the least thing they wanted to happen. Uh, The bitter truth, so far as they are concerned, is that in reality, in practice so far at least, the pursuit of that policy has undermined support for the union, such that, frankly, uh, Scotland's continued membership of the United Kingdom has never looked more fragile and more problematic than it does now.
2: So given that history that you gave us, I just want to talk about the present moment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, since Brexit, of course, but also the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, we've been seeing a lot of renewed attempts by the Scottish government in Edinburgh to establish a second referendum on independence. How has the SNP influenced the debate surrounding independence since Brexit and the beginning of the pandemic?
0: The fact that we are now in a position where rather than simply saying that maybe it's about 50-50, for yes versus no to independence, which is what the polls were saying at the beginning of this year, that we've now got polls that on average, 54% support for yes, 13 opinion polls in a row, all saying yes ahead. Um, something that's never, ever previously been true of Scottish training history. That seems to be tied up with the coronavirus. Um... One of the things you'll have to understand about the coronavirus, perhaps not so difficult for people in the United States to understand is perhaps in certain other parts of the world. Uh, but under the, the, the devolution settlement that was introduced in Scotland uh, just over 20 years ago in 1999, designed originally as an attempt by the United Kingdom to keep Scotland in the Union, to demonstrate that um, within the framework of the United Kingdom, Scotland could indeed have its own government have its own parliament, separately elected, so we've moved away from executive devolution to legislative devolution. One crucial aspect of that um, settlement was that the health service, uh, including public health, is a responsibility in Scotland, not of the UK government, but of the Scottish government. Indeed, in Wales, it's the responsibility of the Welsh. So and in Northern Ireland, it's the responsibility of the Northern Irish Assembly. So we've had four separate um, uh, set of rules on on, on uh, uh, lockdown uh, since March of uh, this year. Now, the perception of the handling of the coronavirus by the Scottish government and Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister, as compared with the handling perceived handling by the UK government and Boris Johnson, the UK prime minister, it's like chalk and cheese. We're getting poll ratings. About 70% of people think that the Scottish government and Nicola Sturgeon have handled the coronavirus well, and about 70% of people thinking that Boris Johnson and the UK government has done badly. It's not to do, as I've already suggested, to do with outcome. It's to do with presentation, uh, apparent command of detail, um, being much talking, much more, uh, I think, straightforwardly to people, etc. etc. Very, very different styles, and perhaps above all, a command of detail. Command of detail is not one of the things that Boris Johnson is famous for. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon uh, can, uh, has been much sharper on that. So, very, very different presentational styles, very different rhetorical styles about coronavirus, much less temptation. Uh, in Scotland to say it's all going to be better for the best of all possible worlds something perhaps you'll be familiar with with Donald Trump but much more saying you know this is difficult it's going to take a long time I know I'm asking you to do a lot but you do really do need to wear a mask you really do need to socially distance anything else is, is socially irresponsible so that that, that that very different tone from um, from, from Boris Johnson um, that um, uh, that seems to have Given people at least the impression that the Scottish government knew what it was doing, was being sensible, etc. Because the mood tended, it tended to be in the United Kingdom tends to be to feel that you know we should keep on being locked down, We should keep on being very, very careful about relaxing the restrictions. Uh, I mean, there's often been a feeling that governments have been relaxing things too quickly. So, against now, one second thing you need to understand about the narrative of nationalism in Scotland. We've already said a crucial part of the narrative is that an independent Scotland would be able uh, to uh, not be subjected to different views of people in England. The second is that an independent Scotland would be able to govern itself more effectively. Now, no no public policy challenge has mattered more and and has affected people's lives in Scotland more in the last 20 years of devolution than coronavirus. We used to, coronavirus is in, is really important. So I think we shouldn't be surprised, therefore, that people's views, uh, that this difference of perception about how this is being handled might make a difference. And what you discover um, from polling data is that there's a couple of them now. I've done it. I've asked people, you know, basically questions along the line of, "Well, do you think if Scotland had been an independent country, it would have handled the coronavirus better or worse?" Um, now, most mostly it's people in favour of independence who say, "Yes, of course it would." And it's mostly people who are opposed to independence who say, "Well, of course it wouldn't." But amongst those who voted against independence. Uh, back in 2014, according to one poll, there's about 20%, another one is about 28%, who think that, well, actually, you know what, maybe Scotland would have governed itself better. And it looks as though that some of those have, as a result, been persuaded of the case for independence. And that seems to be the story as to how we've got from 49 50% to 54%. So it's been two very, very different stories, Two completely unrelated phenomena, Brexit and uh, coronavirus, but the way they've played out politically. Does seem to have resulted in this dramatic increase in support for independence. That said, I, mean, I think one thing is absolutely crucial to understand. I mean, apart from the fact that, of course, there's no guarantee that people in Scotland will continue to think the Scottish government have handled the pandemic well, and there's already a bit of a sign that the fact that Scotland is suffering the second wave, much like the rest of the rest of the developed world, um, um, and has not escaped it, um, that, um, that people's evaluations of the Scottish government are beginning to decline a bit. But you know, wh- whatever's going on there. Um, we just um, uh, need to be aware that Scotland really has not been debating independence in the last six or 12. We've been debating Brexit. We've been uh, uh, focused on coronavirus. We've not talked about um, you know, what would be the pros and cons of independence six years on from 2014. And quite a lot has changed since 2014. So for example, if you're now talking about an independent Scotland applying to join join the European Union. That raises a fundamental question about what do we do about the border between Gretna Green and Berwick on Tweed? Because this would now become a European Union single single, uh, market border, which you might need customs for. Um, if Scotland were to become part of the uh, Schengen Agreement, whereby you have passport-free control, um, it would also become a passport border. Now, that was nothing to do in 2014, because Scotland was going to stay inside the European Union. Um, So, whether or not people in Scotland will buy into that, we have to see, and we know enough from what's happened on the island of Ireland, and the argument about Brexit there, uh, to realise this is a thorny issue.
1: Great, yeah, so with all this complexity in mind, this, you know, a lot of things going on, a lot of collisions happening, what would the dissolution of the United Kingdom mean for the European Union and NATO allies like the United States? Because such an event like this would have massive implications. And perhaps-
0: sure. there, 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 Yeah, there, 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 are, there are two issues here. Um, one is you've, when you've referenced the European Union. I mean, the honest truth is that the withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union is the biggest reverse that the European uh, uh, Union project has had since 1958. You know, okay, you know, it lost Greenland, but nobody really was too concerned about Greenland, and given how far away Greenland is and relatively small it is in terms of population, um, you know, the rest of Denmark is still... Um, uh, part of uh, the European Union, etc., and you know particular issues with fishing, etc. So, um, but otherwise, basically, you know, the point about the European Union and, until now has been that it's expanded. You know, it expanded into Southern Europe when the authoritarian, straight military regimes of Spain and Portugal and Greece fell, and it expanded. Uh, f- uh, further, with the decline of the Iron uh, Curtain, which made it possible for Austria to join, but then, of course, also eventually, uh, you know, Poland, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary, uh, etc. Mo- mo- most of Central and Eastern Europe. This has been an exp- uh, expanding project, which all of a sudden has stopped. And I think, you know, the honest truth is that um, although Scotland joining, um, the European Union, rejoining the European Union in comparison is relatively small beer. Um, one suspects that um, despite obviously the fact that Spain is somewhat concerned about the precedent this sets for Catalonia, if, he en- if in the end Scotland, there is a legal pro- process for Scotland to become independent and if Scotland does indeed eventually become part of the European Union, once again, then no, as it were the European Union would in some senses have a... Um, gained uh, a, a little bit of the damage ameliorated didn't end the, the debate in the UK about Brexit. I doubt if the 2016 one will be. Uh, once you look at the age profile of attitudes towards the European Union, with young people being much more in favour of being in favour of remain, look at still that the fact that the UK as a whole is divided 50-50 on this subject. This still looks like one that's potentially going to run and run and run. And obviously, if Scotland were to leave the United you know, Kingdom and join the European Union because of Brexit, I think you know there will be a knock on effects after the border. So that's aspect one. Aspect two, of course, <laughs> And the reason why, in particular, the United States and NATO have a particular interest in Scotland is that it is militarily important for two reasons. One is that of course it uh, is uh, it, it borders on the Northwest Passage um, and you know that part of the Atlantic you know it's, it, it's where a lot of Russian submarines go from Siberia uh, potentially into the Atlantic they go over. Uh, to the, that coast to the north of Scotland and you know, having ac- easy access to those waters and also in, you know, being satisfied that um, those waters are being adequately patrolled um, something which at the moment is in part at least being done by the United Kingdom you know, is, is, is important. Now, it has to be said, in a change of policy the, 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 the Scottish National Party did a few years ago, before the 2014 Prince referendum, say that it, it would want independent Scotland to be part of NATO, so potentially there is a bridge there. However, the other bit of which the SNP at least is in favour of, the United Kingdom's um, independent nuclear um Capability, which, of course, is a submarine-based facility based on uh, Trident submarines that come from the United States. Um, that is based uh, just off uh, uh, on the River Clyde on the west coast of Scotland. And it is widely accepted that there really isn't any part of England or Wales whose geography provides... The facility that is provided there of being extremely well protected, uh, deep access until you get quite close to the coast, etc., etc., et, cetera, et cetera, um, that is provided by um, the f- facility uh, uh, in the west coast of Scotland. And it is SMP policy, at least. The SMP, perhaps in part for reasons of historical action, You know, got signed up to uh, nuclear disarmament in the 1960s. It's long been part of an article of faith for many people inside the uh, the SNP. And um, therefore, the SNP says that an independent Scotland should um, require the um, Trident nuclear weapons to go. And of course, you know, at minimum, you know, it would mean that uh, um, the rest of the United Kingdom would find itself in much the same position as the Russian state found itself vis-a-vis Ukraine of its nuclear capability being located on territory for which it, over which it no longer had sovereignty. And that in itself potentially creates an issue. Now, of course, at this point, one has to say, well, of course, uh, there is no guarantee that um, the SNP would inherit um the earth if Scotland were to become independent. Uh, i.e., you know, there is no guarantee that the SNP would be running Scotland uh, should the country become independent. Indeed, you know, you can raise a very simple existential question about what is the point of the SNP if and when Scotland's become an independent country, won't right? other divisions become much more important. So we don't know whether or not you know that's what the position of independent Scotland would be, but it might be the position of independent Scotland. And you know it is no secret, and there were plenty of uh, you know discussions and seminars in of the twenty fourteen independence referendum to say that you know this was not something with which the United States was terribly enamoured, and was kind of privately at least hoping that maybe Scotland would see sense and not vote in favour of independence.
1: Well, thank you very much for your insight, John. Uh, it was very appreciated today. We're glad you joined us. Not at all delighted. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at HopkinsPOFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.